Warning, Weird West Radio contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Radio on Rain Man Digital, Rain Man Digital's exclusive Western show. I'm your stagecoach driver and my uh, gunman that protects me from wild people, street agents, if you will, is also here riding shotgun. Hello, Dave. Protecting us from the bandits. Yeah. I like to call them road agents. Road agents? Yeah, that's better. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So in this episode, we have a discussion planned around the 1972 Western titled Joe Kid. It's an American Western film starring the one and only Clint Eastwood and Robert Duvall. And it's written by Elmore Leonard and directed by John Sturges. The film is about an ex-bounty hunter hired by a wealthy landowner named Frank Harlan to track down Mexican revolutionary leader Luis Chama. Played by John Saxon, one of my favorite, like, cult actors. There's some pretty good names attached to this film. There is. And this Chama is fighting for land reform. It forms part of the revisionist Western genre. And if you guys are not familiar with what revisionist Westerns are, they're typically every single Western film that we see today. And none of them are the classical Westerns because we have a very different worldview. The classical Westerns worked, you know, prior to 1960, I would say more or less uh, our, our cultural identity aligned a bit more with those types of ideals. And then I would say post 1960 into the seventies, the desire for different types of Westerns permeated the, uh, the culture. Right. And then that's why we started getting a lot more revisionist Westerns, basically the revisionist Westerns, they subvert the myth and romance of the traditional uh, by means of character development, and realism to present a less simplistic view of life in the yeah. old West. It's, I don't want to say it's more realistic because they're also a form of myth, but it's, it's more pessimistic. It's more gritty, darker. There's more darker elements that you would expect in a re- revisionist Western because it's, it's the type of storytelling that allows the filmmaker to take the Western genre and tell a story that people m- are going to be uncomfortable talking about. It's kind of like the one revisionist Western that I always think of is the wild bunch. Oh yeah. Wild bunch by far. Yeah, definitely. And these films, the reason why they didn't really occupy the cinema prior to, let's say the late sixties is because of the Hays code. Yeah. And once the Hays code restrictions were relaxed, the uh, revisionist films started to, or the revisionist Western films started to find themselves into the, the cinema a lot more. And they ended up supplanting 
for the most part, the more classical themed Westerns. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I don't want to say they reflected our realities, but they refracted our realities and they gave us a way to understand the changes that were happening in our country, the contradictions, the conflicts. And that's the biggest reason why these revisionist Westerns really took the world by storm. Well, especially like it was during this time, a lot of people pointed out that you started seeing beforehand, you would always, the, the stereotypical Western character is the good guy in the white hat, right? Right. Revisionist Westerns came out and muddied the water. They, that trope or that icon, uh, that iconography of, of Western uh, movies was almost seemed boring. Because it's it's too blasé, it's too black and white. You, you you can't make it complicated. David, who really has anything in common with the white hat? Exactly. Very few people. Most of us are extremely flawed individuals, and mm-hmm. that's why the blurring of good and bad or good and evil works a little bit better. Taking that gray area and creating your Western within that type of sandbox ended up just working a lot better you know, and just to give a more precise definition or explanation, traditional Westerns always embodied a clear boundary between good and evil. Yeah. And the revisionist Western never attempted no. to create that clear boundary. In fact, like as I said, it, there wasn't a boundary. It was a blurring of that boundary. And many times we'd have characters do some, I, I guess you can say traditionally immoral things. But... They're the good guys. Yeah. And this film, Joe Kid, definitely falls into that category without a doubt. Now, this film was released and distributed by Universal Pictures on July 19th, 1979. It had a running time of 88 minutes. It's a little too short from for my liking. I prefer my Westerns to be a little bit longer. Uh, and the music was by Lalo Schifrin, I believe is how you say this gentleman's name. The synopsis, an ex-bounty hunter reluctantly helps a wealthy landowner and his henchmen track down a Mexican revolutionary leader. So this is a Western I have not watched nearly as often as others, which I found surprising as I was rewatching for our discussion because it holds up. Uh, it is still a solid Western film that correctly utilizes aspects of the revisionist western subgenre you've got the morally ambiguous joe kid yeah who doesn't quite subscribe to traditional codes of morality which we're going to talk about that a bit more towards the end of the show when we get into the reception of this film because Mm -hmm. i feel like that aspect plays a lot when it comes to the overall reception of joe kid throughout the last what 30 40 years. Yes. So it's this film is more in line with what I call cowboy. And let me let me backtrack a bit. Joe Kid, I would say, falls more in line with what I call cowboy ethics. Good person, which good is relative, but <laughs> it is isn't guided by one set of moral codes. And it's something that is very common with the roles Eastwood plays. We're all familiar with that. I mean, that pretty much, I would say Eastwood didn't just do that in Westerns. That's what filled out his entire career, his entire resume, his filmography is built on the platform of a type of cowboy ethics, even Dirty Harry. I mean, Dirty Harry, for all intents and purposes, is a contemporary Western. Oh, easily. Easily, even if you look back at Dirty Harry now and and uh, Enforcer, that whole series, it is you can you can basically take out Dirty Harry, the character, the essence of that character, and put it into a western, and it would just flow seamlessly. And oftentimes, he's the embodiment of natural justice. That's one thing that I really like, and I say natural justice because. It's almost like nature's defensive mechanism. And I say yeah. natural justice because human codes of conduct have no real meaning in the world. It's made up. However, nature has a peculiar way of setting things straight. Yes. I suppose you can say the natural order 
And, and this is why I say Eastwood's characters, like Joe Kidd, are the physical manifestation of that natural justice. Mm-hmm. In large part, some would say the universe of revisionist Westerns are indifferent. And I'd agree. But indifferences does not mean chaos or chaotic. Yes. Another example of this is a film like High Plains Drifter. There you go. That's that's the one that a lot of people compare Joe Kidd to. That is a supernatural version of the embodiment of, say, natural justice. Yeah. All right, David. So what are your initial thoughts on Joe Kidd? My initial thoughts on this, I was actually, I was very surprised when I went back and watched this because just like you, I think Joe Kidd flies under the radar when it comes to all Western people's lists of good Westerns, Joe kid going back and watching it. I'm like, going, you know what this movie, if it were to be made today, I honestly think it would have done very well because the way that Joe kid is done, it's more what we see nowadays with, with, uh, with, Westerns done today, you know, the, the, the ambiguity of sides, there's no, there's no good or evil. You just have these three opposing forces colliding with each other. And you're just hoping that at the end, everything will just work itself out. Um, I actually found my, found myself comparing Joe Kidd to almost like 310 to Yuma. When you look at 310 to Yuma, it's, it's, a similar vein of these people have their own agendas and you're just hoping by the end of the film, the person with the quote unquote good agenda that we as the audience morally choose wins out. And, and in Joe kid, it's, it was interesting because like you understand Joe kids motivations, but you don't want him to be helping this wealthy landowner nor do you want to actually if he were to choose the side of chama he's essentially choosing the side of a terrorist and <laughs> a violent revolutionary, a violent revolutionary. Yeah, who was and willing to allow his own people to die, to die. for his cause and yeah. you almost like you're like going wow the, we just now hope joe kid is the one that wins out in the end even though he's not a good person. See, that's why this movie is interesting to me. I really like what the director did with this film because you stated the sides in a very tangible way, David, you have the landowner and you have the revolutionary. Those are the two people who are at odds. Yes. And Joe kid is just in the middle. And that's why I say he's the natural order. Natural order is bringing order to chaos and not because he wants to, but because he's part of nature. He just happens to be there. And that's why in a lot of ways, this film really works for me because it's built off of a more, I I don't want to say it's, it's the drive of this film is all about perspective. And we'll get into that in a second here. Yeah. Director John Sturges, uh, he was an American film director, mostly remembered for his outstanding Western films in 1992, Sturges was awarded a Golden Boot Award for his lifelong contribution to the Western genre. Now, the Golden Boot Awards were an American acknowledgement of achievement honoring actors, actresses, and crew members who made significant contributions to the genre of Westerns in television and film. Now, just to go through his body of work very quickly here. I'm going to pick out the ones that people are familiar with here. (laughs) So he, his filmography goes back to 1946, starting with the man who dared shadowed alias, Mr. Twilight for the love of rusty keeper of bees, Thunderbolt, the the sign of Ram, uh, the magnificent Yankee mystery street. Let's see here. I'm going to skip ahead to the, the gun fight at the okay corral. One of my, that, that is a good classic Western. 1957. Too. That's his big claim to fame. But then there's another big claim to fame here. And that's the Magnificent Seven 
That's the one I was waiting for you to bring up. <laughs> yes. So those two, and I would even throw Joe Kidd on here. I'd say those three, and I know there might be some Western fan out there who is uh, shaking his finger at me now saying, how dare you, sir? You forgot other ones. There are there a, lot, a lot, but for us, I would say in this studio currently, uh, the top three films for us that were directed by Sturges is gunfight at the OK Corral. Yeah. The Magnificent Seven and Joe Kid. And Joe Kid. Yeah. And that's not even talking about stuff he's done outside of Westerns, too. Well, The Great Escape. The Great Escape is, is <laughs> iconic. I mean, for me, if take out, if you were to actually say we're going to throw all of Sturgis's movies in, I love Westerns, but my God, I love The Great Escape. Well, that's a fantastic film. The Great Escape is arguably his greatest achievement. Yeah. And I'm wondering because he, I would say Sturges, maybe he was ahead of his time. And maybe, or maybe he should be, maybe he should have been making films for, or at least this movie. Maybe he should have been making it for the European audiences. Cause I think the European audiences probably would have appreciated this film much more than say the American audiences. I think so. Um, so overall, this film is, is far from perfect. And let's get into our actual analysis here. But there's some incredible directorial nuance when it comes to the performances. There were interesting moments, things that sometimes directors will do to make the actors pop more. Uh, and what I mean by that is give them something to do rather than simply just stand around when they are not talking or when they are going through the motions in order to keep the plot moving. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is it, next time you watch a movie, look at some of the background and not talking about the background actors like the extras, but just, you know, let's say actor D or actor. let me do this in movie terms here. Actor four on the call sheet and there's nothing for him to do, but he's just standing there. He's holding a gun maybe. And he just looks a little bit unnatural because in reality, what do we do when we're not, in the midst of the conversation, we either a trying to listen and we show obvious mannerisms that would, that would, that would show that we are trying to pay attention. We would maybe pick up a cup and drink. Maybe we're eating a sandwich yes. in the background. And that's something that this film did a lot. For example, Eastwood did some of this with the role eating, drinking during scenes. And I know that's something we've seen Eastwood do before, but this is different. This wasn't just in the script. You're going to, take a drink and you're going to eat. These are directorial cues. Yeah. For example, in the bar and most of the first act you had Eastwood simply from an observational standpoint, he wasn't really a part of the story yet for the first act. He was just observing. Yes. He was people watching. He was people watching. He was the perspective of the audience. Essentially. He was given through his eyes. We were able to take in the lay of the land and understand the world we are in. Who is doing what to who? What's this revolution about? What's the landowners about? And while we are observing all this through Eastwood's perspective, he's eating. Yes. He's making a ham sandwich with like a glob of mayonnaise. mayonnaise. That's what it looked like. He's drinking, I believe, beer with a sandwich. I, I don't know who drinks beer with ham sandwiches. Is, is that a thing, David? <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently that's a very manly thing. <laughs> but I loved it because I don't think I've ever seen Eastwood that quirky in a role before. Yeah. Have and we, and I've, I, I believe I've watched every single Eastwood film ever made. And I don't believe he's ever played a quirky role like that. No. And that's why I feel this might seem sacrilegious to a lot of Western fans out there, but Joe Kidd, after rewatching it and seeing again after so many years now and getting to pick out those nuances, this is probably his most dynamic. I've ever seen him portray a character. And you got to remember, in 1970s, we started seeing a more, a change in the actor atmosphere at that time, where prior hand, just like what you said, normally 
actors or characters will just stand in the background and stare at whoever is actually talking. Yeah. Right. They, and they it, almost it's look very, like an NPC. An NPC. Yeah. It, it's a very, you see that a lot in the 1950s movies and 1960s movies because people don't realize naturally you know, we're blinking, we're looking at things, we're using our hands, we're taking, we're eating. We're daydreaming. We're daydreaming, yeah. right? And it's during the 1970s, that's when you see a lot more actors start testing the waters of doing this. And I give a lot of praise for the directors during that time, like Sturgis, who allows his actors and encouraged his actors to do stuff like that. Yeah. Because you got to remember back then, Normally, if an actor were to do something like that, he'd get yelled at. He said, why are you doing that? Stop that. Yeah. In fact, Leone yelled at actors for Leone doing things. Do he was that. like, well, he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Don't do that. Don't do that. And yeah, he just wants you to stand there. But like Sturgis, who comes from a classic director background, under I think as a director, he's very underrated because he knows- extremely how to handle his actors. Well, look, okay. So up to this point, David, he had already done over 20 films. Yeah. So the guy was a through and through veteran. There's no doubt about it. And that's why many times when you get an actor like Eastwood, because Eastwood is a good actor, but he's not known for his acting. Yes. And that's because he just found comfort in certain roles In roles. Yeah. But when you give him the opportunity to do something different he usually can deliver because he's a good actor. We just don't really throw his name into those into the list, those the common lists list of best actors, because that's not really why people go see his films is for his acting. They go see an Eastwood film because they want to see him shoot up the fucking place. Yes. You know, that's why people go see an Eastwood film. But this film does a little bit of everything. It gives us that Eastwood that we want to see, but also it gives us a very different, almost a, an introspective Eastwood. Yes. Where he's thinking about things and and even there's regret. There's, he, there's a bit of remorse when he does one thing. He realizes he shouldn't have done this. There's a lot of interesting moments for Eastwood. And it blows me away that Sturges and Eastwood didn't ever work together again. And I know Sturges was at the end of his career because I believe he only did maybe three or four other films after Joe Kidd. Yeah, the one only other thing that I think he did something with Charles Bronson in the 70s. With, I think it was called Chino or something. But. Oh, yeah. I'm, that, that was the last thing I remember John oh, Sturges yeah, doing. Oh, yeah, okay. Because he, was, he, he also did, well, no, I think Lamont came after, before the 70s we're gonna have to throw chino on our list oh yeah charles bronson dude <laughs> come on <laughs> yeah i forgot about this film i have seen it but i totally forgot about that film until you mentioned it but like when you get to when you get to sturgis and it's amazing too because sturgis's name is never really brought up as one of the best directors of all time but if you look at his filmography the cast that he had to deal with the varied actors that were that he had, had to deal with is amazing. Look at the Great Escape. The Great Escape is a star-studded cast. You look at Magnificent Seven. That's a heck of a cast to deal with, and also one of the most iconic films of all time. Yeah, not forget Western, just iconic film. And who I, hasn't seen Magnificent Seven? Exactly. And like, I really think that he's an underrated direct when it comes to directing because he probably is had this God-given talent to pull things out of his actors. Yeah. And his actors never complained. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> That's an interesting point, Dave, because when you speak of great directors, Sturges don't, he doesn't come up very often. He doesn't often. come up very often. I mean, now if people were to bring him up, they would definitely agree, oh yeah, he's a great director, but he's, he's not mentioned in film circles as much as you would think mm -mm. for having such a great body of work and having some iconic films. I mean, there are directors who've done far less films and have far less iconic films amongst that list who gets mentioned. <laughs> exactly. You know, a lot more than Sturges does. So yeah, Sturges, he just pays a lot of attention, a lot of attention to the nuances, especially things that are usually neglected uh, when it comes to certain characters 
And many times these neglected characters oftentimes end up feeling like simply stock characters. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, the villains in this film, Lamar, played by Don Stroud. Yes. And Roy, Paul Coslow, and Mitchell, Gregory Walcott, were so good. (laughs) Yeah. They were were doing things. They weren't even the main focus, but they gave them things to to do. That was, that's one of my biggest problems with all old school Westerns. They don't, they just want to give them a gun, put them in a trench coat and a hat and they look cool and tough. And that's it. Surges is giving these B and C players things to do that actually showcase their talent. Yes. I believe Roy, uh, Paul Coslow is the one I'm, I'm thinking of right now. The last one to die. Mm-hmm. Damn it, dude. Just the things he does throughout the entire film. He antagonizes him and Lamar both antagonize Eastwood. And of course they get their just desserts. But these are types of villains I like because oftentimes in Westerns, we don't get these types of villains in the secondary categories. Yeah. Sure. Our lead villain is usually just as good as the protagonist, but the, the ancillary characters tend to start, dwindling the the nuances of their performances tend to start dwindling away to where they pretty much become stock characters. And that is not the case with this movie. Mm -mm. Every single face in this movie has a purpose and they all do something. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's amazing when it comes to the characters. And I started thinking about it after actually trying to, uh, when I finished watching it, I started analyzing and started researching a lot about the, the cast and particularly the crew and, and Sturgis's methodology as a director. The thing I was so amazed with is like Sturgis's knowledge of how to use tiny little details just to make characters pop. Because when you watch a Sturgis film, all the characters are very memorable. Like I thought about it. I'm like, I remember all the three villains. I remember you know, Robert, du- yeah, you're going to remember Robert Duvall. You're going to remember. Of Robert, course. And we haven't even talked Robert about Paxson. him yet. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah. You're going to remember John Paxson. But it's the fact that every single character in his film was memorable, even down to the females. The females were actually done pretty well, too. We like to call them ladies. Ladies. But like, and then I thought about it. I'm like going, well, wait a minute. Why am I not surprised? Because if you look at Sturgis's filmography yeah the fact that he's so good at handling big grandiose projects with an ensemble cast and all the ensemble cast always have a chance to shine yeah it's so weird like going at going at arguably his one of his greatest which is magnificent seven we all remember all the seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because Sturgis allowed all seven of the Cowboys to have their own thing. Yeah. Do their own thing. Even when, when they're not even the center, center of the attention, th- they'll do one little thing and all of a sudden we'll go, oh yeah, that, that makes sense why that character would do that. And it adds the element of, you know, gravitas to the characters i mean one of the most iconic things i always remember from magnificent seven with all the cowboys together was the uh where they're doing the knife throwing contest Mm -hmm. every single cowboy had did something yeah no one was just standing there just staring and then when you look at joe kid you go to the three villains that are behind robert duvall they're not just throwaway villains they're not body. They're not. They're not uh, bullet sponges no. for the for the for the hero. They all have their own little nuance and quirks. And just like you said, by the time you get to that payoff of the last one dying, Roy, you're like going. They all deserve the comeuppance. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I haven't even brought up Robert Duvall yet. And I I'm gonna get to him in just a moment. This hurts me to say this. And this should also say something too. Robert Duvall was actually probably the weakest link of all the actors. Yeah. And Robert Duvall is an amazing talent and he did a good job in this movie. But to analyze this film from an objective standpoint, forgetting the fact that I'm a huge Robert Duvall fan, he's probably the weakest link of the film. And that's not a negative necessarily. That should tell you how strong 
the other side players were in this movie. Mm -hmm. Now, David, some of this quirkiness, let's split the difference here because some of this, this nuance could have a lot to do with the script itself as well. Not to take away from Sturges. I fully uh, subscribe to the idea that this film has the nuance that it does because of him. However, we can't take away from the man who wrote the film as well. And it does make sense when you put these powers together that we'd have such this type of ensemble cast that has this type of nuance in their performance. The movie was written by Elmore Leonard. Yes. He is one of the greatest American novelists of our day. Yeah. Without a doubt. He's a short story writer, screenwriter, and his earliest novels, which I've read them all. They were originally published in the 1950s. We're all Westerns. But he went on to specialize in crime fiction and suspense thrillers, many of which have been adapted into motion pictures. In fact, he has a, an entire body of work that's been adapted. Some of his films people are familiar with, Out of Sight, Get Shorty, Get Shorty yeah. Be Cool, 310 to Yuma. 310 to Yuma? You... He, out of sight, touch, be cool, pronto, the big bounce, kill shot, freaky deaky. I've never heard of that one. Do you know what, you know what I kicked myself where I didn't realize how good Elmore Leonard was when I started watching Justified? Oh, yeah. Justified as Justified. well. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like going, God damn, this is written really well. Who the hell wrote this? And I'm going, he was a consultant, but he did the, the pilot. Was, he did the pilot. Was developed was, pretty accurately from his novel. From his novel. Yeah. And I'm like going, holy crap, this is written by Elmore Leonard. And then when I went back and I basically realized like movies, like I think Tarantino worked with him, right? With Jackie Brown. He adapted uh, Rum Punch, which he turned into Jackie, Jackie Brown. Brown. He changed the title. Yeah. Yeah. And then... You bring up Get Shorty and everything. Some of those movies were so dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I'm like going, no one talks about Elmore Leonard. And what do all those films have in common? He has a very distinct style, specifically with how he writes baddies or even anti-hero types. There's a quirky, naturalistic vibe to how his characters interact with each other. You mentioned Tarantino. There's a reason why he adapted Rum Punch to film. Yes. The dialogue, the casual interplay, it all lends itself to Tarantino's style as well as Elmore Leonard's style. And if you think about it, Leonard, now this is getting a bit too much into the book nerd in me. I found out Elmore Leonard's influences were Ernest Hemingway and John Steinbeck. That makes so much sense when you look at his writing. <laughs> yeah. It, it's... That's why I'm saying we can't take away from no. his involvement in this film as well. And overall, I, I like the pacing of the movie. I feel like uh, Leonard did just a fine job with that. It allows the setting to marinate along with what's at stake. It's a rather simplistic narrative. And if a narrative is simply if people aren't aware of that verbiage. A narrative is design or the architect of a building, right? While the plot is the building itself. Yeah. That's probably a better way of saying it. Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. Yeah. And also just to throw in there about it, just because it's simplistic doesn't mean it's bad either. I think this is something we've been saying a lot lately on shows. Simplicity is just fine. In fact, yeah. I welcome simplicity many times with, with bigger budget, Mainstream films, they probably should be simple be because they are designed to be ingested by the mainstream. Yes. And most of the mainstream doesn't like overcomplicated things that they have to think about. It doesn't mean you can't intertwine the simplicity of a plot with highly intricate subtext. Yes. Which is what a, some of the best movies actually do because the subtext isn't going to be understood by everyone unless you are that type of viewer who wants to take all that in. Mm -hmm. And that's why simplicity is absolutely fine. There's too many negative connotations attached to that. But when I say simple, it doesn't always mean a, a negative. And because this film is, I would say very simple, Yeah, but it's, but it, I feel like its worth is found in that simplicity because even mm -hmm. though the plot is simplistic, it allows for us to do other things like watch things. 
I love the fact that a lot of this film was built, as I was saying at the beginning of the show, it was built around observing. Um, There's not a lot of exposition. Uh, It was designed with a means, as I said, of observation in, in mind, the audience watches with the protagonist and same thing with actor interaction during the first act, having the film written from the perspective of Joe kid was a great way to introduce story characters and plot motivation. Now, just to get into the acting a bit more because we've skipped Robert Duvall, <laughs> Robert Duvall was in a lot of ways, the, the main plot motivator. Oh yeah. It wasn't Eastwood, which is an interesting I would say route to take when you're dealing with a Western film, especially a film that's dealing with Eastwood. The fact that he was on, he's essentially in the back burner for the first act. He's front and center, but the story revolves around him. It doesn't really have anything to do with him. Yes. And that I feel is the most interesting part of this film that he is a a man I wouldn't say he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but that's essentially what it was. That's what it was. He got dragged into this, this scuffle between landowner and revolutionaries. And he finds himself being the moral compass, which is an interesting role for an Eastwood Western. Yes. And I'm not saying he subscribes to traditional morality because he doesn't. They I mean, this is an Eastwood Western and you're talking about a revisionist Western there. There are clear good and bad. There are clear wrong things and good things to do. So there is a morality in this film that Sturges and Leonard puts in to the film, but it's an ambiguous morality, which it should be with revisionist Westerns. Yes. And, And, and the deciding factor of what is good and what's, bad is not necessarily something that we would agree with in today's life, but it is what's decided by, and this is where Eastwood's character does matter. He's the one, his character is the one who decides what's wrong and what's What's right. right. And that's when he gets involved. And you know what the interesting part about this, when I thought about this and comparing Eastwood's portrayal of Cowboys is this is the one that basically, this is the one cowboy that, or cowboy like character that is dragged into a scenario that we as the audience basically know is neither good nor evil. Usually when Eastwood comes in, say like in high plains drifter, what is it? This it's usually a downtrodden people asking for help, right? Like innocent people begging for help and begging for a hero in this scenario. Harlan's a, a despicable landowner. He drags Joe Kidd into this because he knows Joe Kidd has a skill that he needs. It's not a cry for help from an innocent person. It's a cry of a cry of assistance from essentially the villain, which is very different from any of uh, any of the other Clint Eastwood type of hero tropes people want to throw out there. That's why one of the things I actually noticed was a lot of people think, well, this is just the atypical Clint Eastwood character, right? They're missing those little details that you mentioned earlier. And they're overlooking it because they see Clint Eastwood as a cowboy and they expect him to be, you know, high plains drifter. They expect him to be the angel eyes from the good, the bad, and the ugly. So seeing him as Joe Kidd is, is very, really different when you take a step back and, and analyze the character because the character is neither good nor evil. The scenario that he's brought into is not really good. It, it's just a pretty much a, just like you said, wrong place, wrong time type of uh, type of scenario. It's almost like it is very Quentin Tarantino like in a lot of ways, because you can't say Joe kid's a hero. Joe kid's just a character. It's interesting when you really start to dig into this movie and, and you analyze the plot and you try to figure out some of the players and how they fall into certain 
categories and archetypes. And this film wasn't reviewed favorably. It still isn't to this day. Yeah. I feel like a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's hard to put your finger on where this film falls into in terms of plot and theme. Sure, it has more of the so-called traditional revisionist Western tropes and or thematic elements that that keeps the the overall film consistent and concise, right? Yes. But also it breaks some of that as well because of what they're trying to do. Now, there is a, I, I, I would consider him a film theorist. His name is Will Wright, and he published a book in 1975 called Six Guns in Society. And essentially, it's a structural study of Westerns. And what he did was he analyzed all of the top grossing Western films from the 1930s all the way into 1972, which I feel like he would definitely get a really solid consensus because he's consuming all the classical Westerns, the post-classical, including the European Westerns, the spaghetti Westerns, which were probably, which were already in their twilight years by 1972. So he had a pretty good idea of all the different Western plots and themes. And what this does is he puts together an, an analysis that found that there are four basic plots in these films. The classical plot, the transition theme, the vengeance variation, and the professional plot. Now, Sturges, whether he was consciously trying to purposely, you know, fuck with people or do something different, I don't think we'll ever know. But this film falls into various categories, dual categories, whereas a lot of Westerns, it's easier to find and pinpoint what category they actually fall into. Now, what I mean, David, is you have that list, right? Do you have one of those lists there? Yeah, I have his list for the classical plot. Okay. Give me the items on the classical plot that Will Wright laid out. Okay. So ultimately, there's 16 plot points to the classical plot. But starting from number one, you have the hero enters a social group. Number two, the hero is unknown to the society. Let's check these off for this film. For this film, yeah. Yeah, as, as you go through that list, let's check this off to see if it fits with Eastwood, okay? So the first one, the hero enters the social, a social group. Obviously, yes. Mm-hmm. That checks. The hero is unknown to the society. That uh, checks. I don't know. Is he unknown? He seems to be well-known, like almost like a trouble starter, though. So I don't know if I would do that one, because is, is he kind of well-known for just not following the law and doing what he wants he's like a problem a nuisance in the town that's the thing though they don't know what his agenda is okay all right i'll give you that because like neither side really knows what joe kid is thinking because they they just want him to ultimately choose their side and then the third one the hero is revealed to have an exceptional ability yes uh the society recognizes a difference between themselves and the hero and the hero is given a special status. Yes. And yes. that recognition is his morality. Yes. That's the, I would say, the dividing element between him and the other sides. And the other sides. And then the next one is the society does not completely accept the hero. Yes. Yeah. They don't, they don't fully accept him. I'd somewhat agree with that, yeah. There is a conflict of the next one is there's a conflict of interest between the villains and the society. Yes. Yes. Uh, the villains are stronger than the society. The society is weak. Yes. Yes. There is a strong friendship or respect between the hero and a villain. That see, and that's where it gets a little slippery here because there's, I would say there are kind of two villains. I, I wouldn't say the revolutionary is evil. But he is an antagonistical element Element. because he's the one who actually pulls Eastwood in. Yes. And by pulling Eastwood in, suddenly we find ourselves in another plot that Will Wright had outlined, which is the vengeance plot. Yes. So now, because you have kind of two opposing sides with Eastwood's character, Joe Kidd, in the center, you're now finding that multiple plots... Classical plots are now validated. Yeah. 
And that's where the movie starts to, f- I don't, I don't want to say that it loses its way. I feel like it makes the film that much more complicated. Yes. I, I rather say it's complicated than actually, I think you were going to say like, f- that's where the flaws come in. Yes. Because you, you just read through about half of the classical plot points that make up the classical plot, right? Yes. Okay. So the third on, on Wright's list is the vengeance elements for the plot and let me go through these with you briefly david the hero is or was a member of society that fits the villains do harm to the hero and to society that fits because the mexican revolutionary went over and beat the shit out of his uh, farm (laughs) hands and stole his horses yeah that's why joe kid got involved in the skirmish between the landowner and the revolutionary, the hero seeks vengeance. Yes. The society is unable to punish the villains. Yes. The hero goes outside of society. Yes. The hero is revealed to have a special ability. Yes. The society recognizes a difference between themselves and the hero. The hero is given special status. So some of these do overlap with other plot elements. Other plot elements. A representative of society asks the hero to give up his revenge. Yes. yes. <laughs> and there's more we can go through, but I want to keep it simple. I don't want to bore people with all these little elements here, but, but if you think about it, you know, and not knowing the other list, because I do encourage like a lot of people go find his, this, uh, Robert uh, Wright's book, mm-hmm. because it's actually a really good read. If you're actually, uh, into the Western film, uh, filmography and, uh, knowing about that stuff, but like just looking at the, a list that he, breaks down and you see all the similarities of Joe Kidd in all the movies in different categories. Like in classical, he, he puts Shane in classical. Shane has elements in Joe Kidd. There are elements that you can, you can compare the two. In Vengeance, you have things like Stagecoach, The Searchers. You can actually put that in Joe Kidd side by side just narratively. You know, the vengeance aspect. And then the transition, you have High Noon. High Noon is, ve- that type of storyline is very similar to Joe Kidd. And then when you get to the professional, that's when basically a lot of people might say Joe Kidd is a professional, because a uh, professional Western, because you have the good, the bad, and the ugly. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the wild bunch. Those are all considered professional. Joe Kidd fits in all those categories. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm wondering if that um, convoluted, those convoluted plot points and how they innervate and weave within to or bleed into each other. Perhaps that's the reason why some people had a problem with this film. Now, on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 80%. Which is good. Which isn't you know, horrible, but also it's I'm surprised for this being a Sturgis film that it didn't you know, have a higher rating. Now, Joe Kidd was released, as I said, in the United States. It ultimately returned $5.8 million in domestic rentals as box office, making it one of the highest grossing Westerns of the year. So it did perform well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, refil- the film received mixed reception from critics. Roger, Roger Greenspun of the New York Times wrote, for perhaps its first half hour, John Sturges', John Sturges's new Western, Joe Kidd, looks surprisingly good. Nothing remarkable, but modestly dis- decent. What do you mean surprisingly good? What a <laughs> douchebag. Can you imagine making films since 1930 and then some loser comes in like, oh, surprisingly, he did something right. Surprisingly, it's good. Um, it's John Sturgis. <laughs> it's John Sturgis. So now I do agree with the initial part for about the first half, which is the first act. John Sturgis's new Western Joe Kid looks surprisingly good. I agree with that. The opening act of the film is what is, I would say, the most unique part because of Eastwood's uh, perspective aspect that he's playing. You know, the observation, slightly introspective. It is unique, especially for uh, a Western film starring Eastwood. I don't agree with what he says in the latter portion where he says when everything is thrown away at the climax and a, a flash of false theatrics, foolish symbolism, go fuck yourself. And what I suspect is sloppy editing. 
I disagree. Now, yes, the movie's final act isn't as strong. And I would definitely say that the way they decide to close the film out and resolve the tension between the revolutionary and Eastwood, it feels a little flimsy. And I'm wondering if that has to do with the 88 minutes. I think so. Because it feels like it it, it almost abruptly ends. Eastwood finally takes action. Mm -hmm. And then, boom, the movie is over. The movie's over. So I do agree that if I don't want to say falls apart, the final act is, it isn't nearly as strong as the opening. No, because, and the weirdest part, when you think about it, just as we alluded to earlier, the very first part of the film, we are just observing. That's it. And if you think about it, if Eastwood is, is just like the audience, we are simply observing and basically making our choices. His, choice at the very end is the final, you know, you could say is the final act. He chooses to act. Now we just deal with the consequences and usually the consequences come really fast. And I think that's what happened is a lot of people look at this and expect Clint Eastwood to get into a fight with all the sides and get into a physical altercation and get beaten up and come back and get beaten up again. Here, Joe Kidd is simply observing and making a choice. That's the thing. He, the, the whole movie is about what choice does he do? Yeah. And, in the and very he's end, not even sure. He's not even sure. Yeah, for the most of the movie. It's an interesting film. There really isn't a lot of negativity. I feel weird criticizing this film too much just because it, it, I feel like it's a very effective Western that doesn't get enough credit. Well, I think so, this, I think this Western aged very well. Yeah. I mean, that's a good comment, Dave, because there's a lot of Westerns that don't age well. In fact, I'd say a lot of the greats that people cling to, especially some of the John Wayne films, mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, this is the greatest ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it was, but I don't necessarily oh, yeah. agree. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean like so those there is a there's a special type of film that instead of like not aging well because majority of films do not age well because they're all based on politics and viewpoints at that time, right? Yeah, sometimes the context is lost. The context is lost. Because people don't know history or they just didn't live in that time, so yes. But then you get those films that are special that just deal with simple, again, bringing that up, simple ideology and making a concise and riveting story to, to, to make that simple idea shine more. And that's what Joe Kidd does. And that's why I was like, after I, after I watched it and rewatched it over there at the time, I'm like going, this Western, I didn't, I forgot that when I was younger, I watched this Western and I, I, I'll be honest, it flew over my head. But now that I get to see the nuances and I study the film and everything and see what they're, they're doing with the narrative, you see the great, the great moments. It's little details. And unfortunately, little details in films get missed a lot. And they, they only get seen as the film ages. And many times those little details is what really makes the film. Yeah. Why do you think people like icing on cake? Why do people like muffin tops? Why do people like cheese on their cheeseburgers? Because it's the finesse. Yes. It's that finishing aspect that really makes that, the, whatever it may be, food or your uh, film that much better. And that's what a Sturgis film typically does. And I feel like this film stands out that much more for me because Leonard's writing also. Yeah. Not perfect, but I feel like the two of them have a very distinct style and working together, you get a film like this. Now, the only thing that pulled me out, and this isn't critical, but the only thing that pulled me out, it's the locations that they shot. At. Really? And not because they weren't great looking. They're beautiful landscapes, typical Western landscapes. The entire film, all of it, was shot in Old Tucson. 
And the reason why that pulled me out is because I grew up in Old Tucson. Okay. All right. I, I, I can see I that. mean, I went to Old Tucson at least once a month. For the t- from the time I was like 10 years old to probably 17 <laughs> or 18, I went there once a month with my family because I've always loved Westerns. My family loves Westerns. So we went there. It was part of the part of the family, you know, childhood experience. And every time I saw a building, I'm like, oh, yeah, I stood out in front of that building. <laughs> I mean, they didn't even change it. I don't know if that's laziness. Did they not do set dressing at all? Because there's a lot of film sets that people use over and over and over. Yeah. But you change them. You maybe possibly build out some additional flats to add, you know, maybe a different look. And this looked exactly like in the 80s and 90s. It looked identical. It's not a negative. It just it just because I grew up there, it kept pulling me out because I recognized every single location. Well, especially since, you know, again, just talking about film history during the 70s, there were parts of the industry that kind of took a backseat, like especially, you know, when it came to set design and set destru- uh, uh, construction. Mm-hmm. Once something was built, people used it a hundred, hundred and thousands of times. And after a while... It just became, okay, we'll just use that building right there. Well, they use that in that movie. Who cares? Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what Goldfield Ghost Town has turned yes. into here. Yeah. Like, I remember when we shot some stuff out there years ago, only big budget films and us were shooting. We're there. shooting there. We were, we were in the lower budget and it was unheard of, you know, for a low budget film to shoot something out there because it's not cheap to rent out that location and now <laughs> you go into the Arizona film directories and everybody's like, oh, I'm shooting a Western to go field ghost, ghost town. town. Yep. Yeah. So, all right. So let's bring this discussion to an end. But first I want to talk briefly about our viewing experience. Uh, I, for one purchased the Blu-ray. I had an old DVD copy, but I figured if I'm going to sit down and, Rewatch to watch this for the purpose of analysis and discussion and review, then I'm going to get the best copy that's out there. Unfortunately, there is no 4k versions available. Please studios out there. Let's, let's get on that. The distributor is universal pictures. You guys have some dough. Let's give us a 4k restoration of this film. Go back into the film negative archives and do your job, please, so we can have a 4K version. That being said, the HD Blu-ray looked beautiful. Looked immaculate. There was no issues. It was, a, it was not a transfer or a, you know, a hack job trying to just <laughs> blow up a standard def. It was uh, very well restored with minimal uh, damage to the film negative if that's how they actually went originally and gave us the blu-ray i'm not sure exactly how the blu-ray was constructed yeah but it was definitely not transfer um david i i will say when i viewed it i did something fun for myself you watch it on vhs yes <laughs> i did what a loser but uh, I, vhs I actually, is still fun the funny the funnier part was i watched it on VHS, and then I watched it on the Blu-ray. David, did you have an SP version, EP, or SLP version of, of that VHS? Oh, God. I think it was an <laughs> SLP. No one knows what that is these days. <laughs> I know. But, like, the, you know what was amazing to me? It made me appreciate the Blu-ray more because those little nuances that we, we talked about in our discussion, you see it more. Oh, yeah. You saw it, like, front and center. Well, that, that's the thing. Sturges was making this for the big screen. Yeah. You know, and and that's probably maybe that's why we get a lot of stock NPC type characters in these older films, because maybe directors, producers were thinking, hey, you know what? We're not really going to see them. Exactly. But nowadays with everyone's big screen TVs, things are easier to make out more. Yeah. Okay, David. So let's go into the saloon because it's time to take some shots of whiskey and rate officially bestow an RMD score on this film. Let's go through those double swinging saloon doors. Let's say hi to the Mexican gal. Hello. I won't be mean to you like Chamas was. <laughs> What's his name? Chama. We'll treat you like an actual human being. Yeah. Lu- you know, forget Luis. <laughs> Come sit next to me. All right, David. So I'm going to give this film an 83% on the RMD score. 
It's a solid Western film. Unlike a lot of Westerns, I don't feel like they always hold up for mainstream audience purposes. For Western buffs, there's a lot of things. We give a lot of latitude and leeway to certain films. But I feel like this film would still resonate with the mainstream as well. People who are casual Western viewers, I have a feeling that if they popped it on, they would actually enjoy the film. 83%. David, go. I am going to go with 85% on this one. I was actually expecting lower, honestly, going back to watching Joe Kidd. So getting at 85, I was really surprised with this movie. I mean, to the point that if I were to tell people, yeah, Joe Kidd deserves to be in your collection if you are a Western fan. Yeah. It really is. I mean, I think it just got a bad rap at the initial reception because people expected Clint Eastwood to portray a certain way. This is also 1970. Was it 1979? Yes. Right? Or no, 1972. Yeah, 1972. So, Dave, 1972, he was coming off the Dollars Trilogy. Yep. A lot of people were probably wanting that. And that's this film is far from that. It's a very different type of Western. All right, so 83 for me, 85 from David. This does bring us to the end of our discussion. Be sure to find us on iTunes and Spotify. Those are our preferred feeds to find our show. Once you find us, subscribe, rate, give us reviews. Thank you, David. Thank you. And good night. Or said he be taken from such prison to a suitable and convenient place of execution within said county and there be hanged by the neck till he be dead, dead, dead. Now, do you have anything to say, young man? Yes, Your Honor, I do. <clears throat> you can go to hell, hell, hell. <laughs>